please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're turning again to the book of Micah, continuing our Advent series. We'll be reading selections from Micah 2, beginning at verse 6, and then skipping over to chapter 6. As we pick up at verse 6 in chapter 2, Micah is facing opposition to his preaching. There are people that are wanting him to stop. And so we read these words, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Now we turn over to chapter 6, and here we have really the imagery of a courtroom. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you are enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel, O oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. O oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. Amen. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. 
Good morning. It's wow. Good morning. <laughs> Sorry, I was going right on. It's good to be together. Uh, young and old, uh, those uh, who are been here every week, those of you who are new, those of you who are coming back to Oray, it's great to have you with us uh, this week. I know it's been a little while. Uh, grace to you and to all of you as we open God's Word. We're in the prophet Micah, going back to the 8th century B.C. Uh, for Advent. Micah is uh, one of the minor prophets, but that doesn't mean that uh, the, the message is less important or anything like that. Uh, Micah comes to us in the vein of the prophets and speaks about the coming of the Lord. We saw that last week. Uh, the book of Micah opens up with God coming down. And, and this is our connection to Advent, right? When we talk about Advent, we're talking about God coming to his people, God coming down, uh, the incarnation, God with us. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep tracking through this. And today we're going to look at what is the place where God comes to? What's the nature of his people and his world, and who is it that, that welcomes the Lord? And it's not really a very flattering picture. Next week, we'll, we'll look at, well, what kind of people are we to be? Uh, then the fourth week, we'll see what kind of a Savior Jesus is as he comes. And then finally, we'll ask the question as Micah closes the book, chapter 7, verse 18, who is like our God who delights to show mercy and steadfast love. That's where we're going. We have a little bit of time before we get there, and, and, and we have to stop a little bit. And for some of you, what might be kind of a strange spot to stop in in Advent and, and really uh, examine our own hearts. You know, remember last week we, we said that Micah, like most of the other prophets, maybe with the exceptions of like Nahum and Jonah, Micah was sent to the people of God. He was sent to the church, as it were. All of his, uh, his, his prophetic uh, utterings were for the people of God. They were for, within the walls, so to speak. They weren't for those out there. You know, it would be wrong for us to take these and, and to apply them solely to people out there, especially without applying them inside first. And, and what we see is this, as we go uh, along, is that these are a people who have lost their way. There are people who, uh, though they were created in God's image, though they were created to follow him somewhere uh, along the way, got lost. In the spirit of people that got lost uh, I offer to you Ronald Weasley. Uh, some of you know Ron Weasley, companion of, of Harry and Hermione, as they are working through their journey to rid their world of wrong. Uh, he was a true believer. He was part of the company, but at one point in their journey got lost. Uh, he, he, because of his own pettiness, because of his own... Uh, insecurities left the group and uh, could not find his way back until he had some help. Uh, Dumbledore knew that he might need this and, and left him a little object uh, that helped him find his way 
back to Harry and Hermione. They have this little exchange here, which I think is so powerful and helps us to set the stage for where we're going. Dumbledore knew what he was doing when he gave me the deluminator, didn't he, said Ron. He, well, and there his eyes, ears turned bright red, and he became engrossed in a tuft of grass at his feet, which he prodded with his toes. He must have known that I'd run out on you. Harry, seeing Ron's discomfort, said no. He must have known that you'd always want to come back. And there's a very real sense of that when we come to the prophets. You know, God is coming to a people who are created in his image and we get lost. And he said, here, I I know that you weren't created to be apart from me. Let me show you the way back. Because at our heart, we... There is that desire. You were created. We were created for you. Our hearts are restless until we rest in him. So, how do we walk through that in terms of Micah? The first thing that we need to do is we need to connect the character of God with his word. For some of you, this this may be, I really believe, this may be the most important thing that you hear today. Uh, Because God's word Uh, is not always relished and cherished automatically. Uh, For some folks, this is the the biggest obstacle that they have towards Christianity. How can we really believe God's word? There are all of these, you know, writers and uh, various things that are calling into question God's word. Uh, God's word talks to me about difficult things. Uh, How can I really rest on God's word? Now, you know, we could spend a whole six-week Sunday school series on that, you know, the veracity of God's Word. Uh, I'll just say today, you know, those scientific questions, some of the other things, God's Word has, has more things that commend it than a lot of the classics that we accept unquestionably. Uh, so there's, there's good, solid uh, evidence for the veracity and the truth of God's Word. But what we need to understand today is that God's word is the way to the heart of the Father because his word reveals to us the heart of the Father. There is not a disconnect between what God says and who he is. And and sometimes we we don't stop and think about that. You know, we, we read God's word and it comes at us with uh, rules, a- and we're like, why, why are there so many rules? Why are all of these things that we shouldn't do? Don't steal, don't kill, don't uh, commit adultery, honor your father and mother, all of these rules. But God's heart is in his word, a- and what we see when we understand that is that his word is, is pointing out to us the path that's right and good. Some of you know that I coach basketball. I love uh, watching it, thinking about it, the beauty and the symmetry. It would be a horrible game without rules, Uh, you know, with no boundaries. You just run up in the stands. You're not having to dribble. Just pick up the ball and run, you know, punch your opponent in the mouth, you know. There's no fun without rules, right? It's not beautiful without rules. And the same thing is true when it comes to life. God's the one that made us. He knows what is good for us. And he said, live this way and it will be well with you. Live that way 
and you're going to suffer the consequences of that. You look at how God talks about this in chapter 6, and then we'll jump back to chapter 2. Uh, but in chapter 6, you know, God talks about his heart in verse 3. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Why are you walking in this way? Look at, I, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I, I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I, I gave you leaders who taught you about me, who taught you how to worship, who led you in celebration and thanksgiving. Now, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. Uh, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. When Balak, the king of Moab, set about to curse you, I gave you Balaam who turned those curses into blessing. This is my heart, O people. You, you should know, you should see that I am a God that's full of mercy and hesed, steadfast love, and I pursue you in order to bring you back to myself. But he says, you're not listening to me. Uh, in fact, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You know, they're, they're not listening to me. They're the people that they have preached to them say no truth. Their seers are disgraced in 3 verse 7. They cover their lips. Uh, there is no power there. In 3 verse 8 we see Micah connecting the, the word of God with the character of God. He says, I am filled with power with the spirit of God. This is Micah speaking. The spirit of God. Justice and might to declare truth to Jacob, uh, his transgression and his sin. The reason why I say that that might be the most important thing for us to grapple with is that how we approach God's word is so significant for how we live our lives. And if we really believe that God is pouring out his heart and he's giving us you know, the, the manual by which we can find our way in the darkness. There is so much help and so much hope for folks. But if we believe that God is against us, if we believe that uh, his, his character is, is one of condemnation, and, and then we're not going to go to his word. And I would just encourage you very strongly, and I know a lot of you are at different places, searching, thinking, looking for answers. God's Word is so crucial in helping us find our way back to the heart of God. Now, by contrast, you have a group of people who are not listening to the Word. I sort of pointed that out, but you see throughout chapter 2, chapter 3, just you know, pick that section out of chapter 2 because it's emblematic. See it again in chapter 5. Uh, all throughout, uh, you see a people who has really lost their way. Uh, they are not listening to God, to his word being preached. They have no interest in it. And there are usually three characteristics, uh, you know, that are encompassed by a fourth thing that I'll mention that characterize the, the prophets, both the minor prophets and the major prophets, especially those who are in the 8th century B.C., Isaiah, uh, Amos, Micah. 
Some of this we've looked at before as we studied Amos, but there are three things. The first is this, morality. Uh, the prophets speak about morality very clearly. You see it in 1 verse 7. It talks about you've built these things on the fees of prostitutes. Uh, there's sexual immorality. Amos says, how can it be that one man goes in, uh, or two, women, two men go into the same woman? Uh, it, just all sorts of immorality. Uh, Micah says, if I'm going to look for a preacher for this generation, uh, this is chapter 2, verse 8 or 7, he says, I need one that's going to talk to you about wine and strong drink because that's what you like. Amos says, you drink your wine in bowls, you lay on your couches, and uh, you know, there is no morality, uh, or at least it's not touching down in a way that is leading you to life. And we understand what that's like uh, today. You know, we talk about the 8th century B.C., and we're like, wow, you know, not a lot has changed. You know, we, we see some of these same things that are marking, now again, it's not just people out there, right? He's preaching to the people of God. And, and he's asking us to examine our own hearts and lives with regards to morality. You know, what do you watch on television? What are you filling your minds with? Things that you read or the things that you look at on the screen. You know, what what is it that really brings you comfort in life? Is it relaxation? Is it the things that you drink? Is it the image that you cut in all of these things? And sometimes we can get very sophisticated with this. And I think, you know, even as Presbyterians, maybe especially as Presbyterians, we, you know, we reject sort of a, an external moralism. You know, don't drink, chew, or go with girls who do. You know, sort of that old way of thinking. And so we become very sophisticated in our Defense of a good bourbon and a good whiskey and all of these things. But what God is saying is look at your heart. You know, why is it that you are grabbing on to these things? What is it that's drawing you in? Is there image, identity issues that you are searching to find apart from me? You know, is there comfort, relaxation, a way for you to get through the day apart from me? Is there a dependence that is growing, taking something that may be good in and of itself, but it's becoming ultimate in your life? Uh, is there a dependence growing on these things apart from me? All of these questions are, are good questions, and the Word of God comes to us and speaks to us about morality. We know that, statistically speaking, you know, pornography uh, affairs. There's very little difference inside the church than outside the church, to our shame. You know, there's very little that, uh, you know, that pursuit of holiness. And God comes to us and he says, look it, I, I'm coming down. You know, where am I coming to? But it's not only morality, it's also justice issues. And you certainly see that in the minor prophets. Micah is is rife with the justice issues. You know, chapter 2, it just starts in, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. They covet fields, they seize them, houses, take them away. They oppress a man in his house and his inheritance. Verse 8, people have 
become enemies. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from the young children you take away my splendor forever. Chapter 3 is, is just graphic in, in what it's saying to the people of God. I, I keep emphasizing this because this is not about out there. This is about in here. It says, uh, you who hate evil or hate the good and love evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones in pieces, chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. You who detest justice, verse 9 of chapter 3, and make crooked what is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, and on and on it goes. This reiterates what we saw in Amos. You know, you trample the poor for a pair of sandals. You have such disregard for the image of God in humanity uh, that we do not pursue. You know, the Bible uses the term justice. We, we see that. Like, when we see the heart of God, God comes to us and says, look, and I'm giving you, you see it. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly or justice, to, to love mercy, has said steadfast love, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, when the women and the children, as it says here in chapter 2, are the ones that are oppressed, when the very weakest in our society, whether it's the unborn or the refugee, whatever, when they don't have a voice, you know, God comes and he says, you're not being who I made you to be. I made you to be a people who would stand in the gap for the weak and the defenseless because that's who I am in my character. I made you to be a voice for those who have no voice. God is very clear in that. And we have to think about this in the way that the biblical sense of it says. You know, we talk about justice, and oftentimes we apply a Western concept of justice, particularly, uh, you know, I've heard it described this way as retributive justice. Uh, if you do something wrong, justice is, is meted out to you, and, and you pay for what you have done. But that's, that's only part of the biblical concept of justice. The biblical concept of justice is not only retributive, but distributive. Uh, that you are proactive about standing in the gap for those who cannot speak. Let me see if I can give you just a small example of this. You know, we like to talk about rights and opportunities and all of these different things in, in our society. And, you know, many would say that Every student in America has the same opportunities to education as everybody else. Well, sort of. I mean, if you want to go by the, you know, strict sort of legal sense of that, we could say, yes, every student has an opportunity for education. A friend of mine taught in inner city St. Louis uh, for a year. I mean, this, this is a rough school. He's a great teacher, uh, loved the Lord, loved his kids, really had an ability to connect with them. It was a blessing, honestly, that, that he could be there as a 
kind of caliber teacher that, you know, ends up in places like East Grand Rapids or Forest Hills, that kind of thing. He taught there for an entire year, never got a key to his classroom, never had access to a copy machine of any sort, and never got books. And he taught English literature. So we ask ourselves, yes, you know, do we live in a society where everybody has the same opportunity for education? Okay, sure. If you want to go by the law, yes. And we can rest then saying we live in a just society. But then we look at situations like that, and I assure you that's not uh, uncommon or completely uh, unique. We say, do we really live in a just society? Are we really crying out for those who don't have what we have? When we have books, we have access, we have all of the things that we might want. God comes to us and he looks at our hearts. You know, and he says, look, this is who I am. This is how I've created you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I appreciated just the way that one writer put it. It says, to show mercy, justice, in this way, the Micah 6, 8 way, is to lift a burden off of afflicted people and to take that burden on our own shoulders. Mercy puts itself in the shoes of those who are ashamed, alone, and scared. What if it was our loved ones who were faced with the realities of an unexpected pregnancy or found ourselves evicted from our homes or dealt with abusive parents or abusive governments and became political refugees? You know, what does it mean to be God's people who speak up for justice and mercy in the way that God speaks up for justice and mercy? And of course, the, the third thing with regards to the people of God is that they try to excuse it all with religious formalism. You know, chapter 2, chapter 3, you see, you know, there's prophets around, but they're preaching what the people want to hear. You know, they're telling them, yeah, this is your best life now. Go live it. You know, enjoy the things that you have. They, they're not confronting things that may be going on in their hearts or lives. They are preaching what the people want to hear. They go to temples that were built by the money of prostitution. But why go to the temples? Well, if I just check the box, you know, if I bring my sacrifice, a morning and evening sacrifice, God says through Amos, he's like, go to Gilgal, go to uh, Bathsheba and, and, and multiply your sacrifices. But you're only going to multiply your transgression. I hate this religious formalism. You worship God with your bodies, but your heart is far from me. And we see a similar thing here, don't we, in Micah chapter 6, you know, where the people say, with what shall we come before the Lord and bow ourselves before God on high? Shall we come with burnt offerings? You know, shall we do it right, bring calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? Perish the thought for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This was the kind of worship that the Israelites were bringing before their God. It was external. 
checking a box. You know, I made it to worship this Sunday, and then I went off and did whatever I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I gave my money. I volunteered at the Ronald McDonald House. I, I did all of these things. I, I'm checking the boxes when God says, now, I, I want your hearts. Because ultimately, and this is sort of the fourth category here, it's idolatry. Whether it's uh, literal idolatry, like we see in the 8th century B.C., carved images, idols, all of those things. Or it's the idolatry of our hearts that elevates who we are above who God is. Elevates, you know, our needs, wants, and desires that we think we have, you know, to in opposition and enmity with what God says is really true, right, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, all of those things. This is part of Advent. You know, part of Advent is, is to look in, you know, prepare a room for the God who comes down, you know, to, to make space and, and really, you know, maybe in a, in a way similar to Lent, do, do some house cleaning. You know, what are some things that you see in yourself, either on the morality side, you know, on the justice side? You know, we, we love to, you know, bifurcate in America, right? We've got conservative values, we've got liberal values. The Bible comes at us with kingdom values. It doesn't care whether you're a conservative or a liberal. It says, do you love the king? And are you following the king? Because these are his values, and this is his heart. And it is his heart. I made reference along the way, you know, to, you know, especially talking about justice, to, to being a voice for, for those who have no voice. Did you notice verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2? You know, I, I said when we are that voice, we, we reflect the heart of God. And that's exactly what is being said here. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, he says, God is now saying, I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before him. They break through and they pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. God is one who hears the cry of the defenseless. But here's the secret to Advent. We are the defenseless. We are the voice that's crying out for help and need. We are the ones who are dependent on somebody to come and make a breach in this mire and morass that we have created for ourselves to make the breach, to lead us out. We need a king at our head, and that king is Jesus. That's what's so beautiful about Advent is we, we see a king who comes and meets us where we are. And when we see that most clearly, then we will be set free to reflect the heart of God to those around us. Because we're not going to sit in condemnation on anybody, right? Because we know that we are the offenders. We know that we, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. 
And so therefore, let me show you the King, the Lord Jesus who comes through. And in a further piece of irony or beauty or a further grasp at the character of God, you know, Micah says in mimicking the people, you know, how can we pay for this? Are we going to bring you our firstborn? God says, no, that's reprehensible. If you were to bring me your firstborn, you would be going against everything that I stand for. But I will send the only begotten Son who of his own free will will take on your sin and misery and he will give his body for the sin of your soul. It's such a beautiful picture of the grace of God that comes to people like you and like me who are in desperate need of it. We've lost our way. You know, we, we as God's people, we're, we're true believers. We really believe that, that God, you know, has got us on the right quest, the right journey. But we repeatedly lose our way. And so he sends to us the very light of the world to bring us back to the heart of God. Diane Langberg, in her book on suffering, just captures the beauty of this only begotten son who gives himself for the world. She says this, the crucified one is the most traumatized. He's born the World Trade Center. He's carried the Iraq War the destruction in Syria, the Rwandan massacres, the AIDS crisis, the poverty of our inner cities, the abused and trafficked children. He was wounded for the sins of those who perpetrated such horrors, who believe in him. He has carried the griefs and the sorrows of the multitudes who suffered the natural disasters of this world, the earthquakes, the cyclones, the tsunamis. He's borne our selfishness, our complacency, our love of success, our immorality, our pride. He's been in the darkness. He's known the loss of all things. He's been abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no part of our darkness there is no part of our lostness that he does not understand and that he has not experienced. But there is also no part that he has not set free those who will believe in him from. Brothers and sisters, we we must confess. We have the freedom to confess that we regularly lose our way. But God, this Advent season comes and he says, here's the way back. I created you. You were made for me. Come, find your way again to the heart of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its truth as it speaks to us of our propensity to want to run, 
to run out on our Creator, to run out on our fellow humans. But we thank you too for its grace. It calls us back. By means of the, the light of your word, by means of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, it calls us back to the heart of the Father. May we all find our way there via our knees, the foot of the cross. But may we be stood up again by the grace of God and with the heavenly host cry, hallelujah. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.